0: This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hack. Hey, it's Dave, Mark Hazy. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. And I want to ask you a question. Have you been a casual worker for long? Months? Years? You might like it. You might hate it. Well, if you are a casual worker, it's about to get a lot easier for you to ditch that casual life and become a permanent employee. So what kind of impact could that have on your life? We're unpacking the government's workplace law reforms that have passed the Senate today. They're bringing them in. What does it mean for you? We're going to speak with the minister, Tony Burke, who will be in to talk with us on this podcast about what it all means. Also, do you have a lawn? If you're lucky enough to have a place with a nice big lawn out the front, everyone kind of wants one until they have it and then they're over it. They're over the mowing or the attention it takes. If that's you, you need to get into the anti-lawn movement. We're going to tell you what that is. First, though. Hack.
1: The federal government will pass its new workplace laws after securing support from the crossbench.
2: On Triple J.
0: When was the last time you got some food delivered to your house? Maybe you're doing it right now. You're thinking of getting some dinner, pizza, pad thai. Australia loves food deliveries, but we know the people who work in that industry, in the gig economy, are often struggling. Gig workers don't have the same rights as other employees in Australia. Actually, they're not even considered employees under the law, but some new laws aim to give them more rights the federal government's putting minimum standards in place for gig economy workers as part of a big industrial relation change. Shalala Madora explains.
3: Earlier this week, members of the Transport Workers Union laid out high-vis vests in front of Parliament House, symbolising those who died on the job.
1: We've lost 58 transport workers.
3: Among those 58 workers were four gig economy workers, like people who drive you around or deliver your food. Muktha Dayokade could easily have been that number. In
2: 2016, I was working for
4: Fedora as a food delivery driver when I was stuck from behind by a
3: car. Muktha's injuries were serious. But without access to workers' comp, she was faced with the option of going back to work before she was fully recovered or starvation.
4: I was just left to fit on myself.
3: Just a quick explainer here of what a gig or shared economy worker actually is. In a nutshell, a gig economy worker is someone who provides a service to a customer for a fee using a digital platform or app. They're considered independent contractors under the law, not employees, according to Employment Minister Tony Burke.
5: If you are an employee, you have a whole series of rights. If you're not an employee, all of those rights all of them fall off a cliff.
3: Nabin Atakari is a delivery driver for a bunch of different companies. He knows all about that cliff that Tony Burke's describing.
6: Most of the gig worker has been in a really vulnerable position right now. We have seen that in the industry.
3: He says workers like him have few rights. For example, if a grocery store or restaurant delays an order, one company makes him pick up the tab.
6: They will send an email like, you have accumulated this much handover fee and you are suspended until you don't pay us back. Until and unless you don't pay us back, we are deactivating you. Some companies have cut
3: payments to drivers and instead put in a bonus system for hitting delivery targets. Nabin says that creates a dangerous work environment.
6: This is something that they put ourselves onto the edge.
3: Nabin is really supportive of the changes the Senate's been voting on today that will give gig workers more rights.
6: This four measure safety pillar will actually give us a worker a peace of mind, like at least there will be food on their plate. They won't go broke just because their car broke down.
3: The changes will allow the Fair Work Commission to classify gig workers as employee-like so they have access to things like insurance, pay transparency and unfair deactivation from apps. These changes propose to establish minimum standards for employee-like workers. Here's Dr Fiona McDonald from the Centre for Future Work explaining how the new changes will play out. They'll be in a kind of new
7: category of worker, which will be an independent contractor who is considered to be employee-like and has some of the standards of an employee, but not all of them. She says the new laws take into account the nature of gig work. Their short shifts are most likely to be determined by demand. If you were an employee, you know, you have a minimum engagement time. You can't ask someone to come to work for half an hour and pay them half an hour. You've got to have a minimum engagement of two to three hours.
3: Platform workers won't have those kinds of standards. Uber, which is the biggest player in Australia's gig economy, welcomes the changes, a spokesperson told Hack in a statement. Uber has long supported reform that establishes minimum standards for platform workers while preserving the flexibility they value. We are hopeful that these reforms will result in laws tailored to modern forms of work. Dr McDonald says other parts of the world are going even further. In Europe, they, there were proposals
7: for platform workers to be just declared employees. So platforms would have all the responsibilities of an employer, which is not going to be the case under this legislation. However, this legislation is a really good start.
0: This is Hack on Triple J. Shalala Medora with that story and Shalala just spoke about the changes to gig workers' rights in the reforms the government's making to these workplace laws it's not just that though, also the right to disconnect, not to have your boss hassle you after hours, we spoke about that on Hack earlier this week And a change to make it easier to go from casual to permanent employee status. So casuals who've worked for six months or 12 months in the case of a small business and they have regular shifts, they can ask to be made permanent. A lot of people are happy about this, but not everyone. Some businesses think these changes are a bad idea. And for more on this, I wanna speak with Innes Willocks. He's the head of the Australian Industry Group, which is a big national organisation that represents businesses in Australia. He's with us now. G'day, Innes. Thanks very much for coming on, Hack. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Minimum standards for gig workers, making it easier for casuals to become permanent employees, being able to ignore your boss when you're off the clock. For a lot of young Australians, I reckon that all probably doesn't sound so bad. Why don't you think these industrial relations reforms are good? Look, it's a good question, and for a lot of people, they'll probably listen to that and go,
8: yeah, yippee, that sounds good for me. The couple of issues here, is it good for you in the long term? Is it good for the place where you work? Is it good for the economy as a whole? Are we doing anything in the modern economy, which is more connected than ever, more reliant on technology than ever? People on all sides of the equation wanting more flexibility, we're doing the right thing by putting more rigidities, more constraints, more conflict into our workplaces. And that's the big question here. You know, we want harmonious workplaces. We don't want conflict in workplaces. We don't want we want to have flexibility where people can convert to permanent if they want, if it works for the business and that's already in place. We want to have some protections for gig. Uh, economy workers and we've always suggested that but the question is, has this gone too far? That's what the gig companies are asking and gig workers are asking. What we've got to do is to strike the balance and the concern from employers is that this has tilted that balance too far towards a system which is very rigid and which takes away the flexibility. So the changes here that have been proposed around casuals actually take away job security because they prevent employers from providing long-term standard casual shifts to people who want them, people like your listeners working at, who are at uni and doing a job on the side and want some standard hours that they can work their studies around.
0: But workers don't have to convert to permanent. Employment if they don't want to, like if they want to stay a casual, they can.
8: Of course they can, and 99% of workers do. But what this does is it makes it much, much more difficult for an employer to give a casual those standard regular shifts over a, a long period of time that a lot of people have got used to. Of course, we've been we've managed to get into the um, into the legislation through consultations that have, that business still have the right. refuse if it doesn't suit their business purpose but around the edges there's now a lot more complexity and the potential for a lot more conflict and for employers that's a risk and it's a risk in employment.
0: Is it really a risk though because under that amendment employers are going to be able to refuse a worker asking to made permanent on fair and reasonable operational grounds. Like that does sound like it would be quite a, a lot to protect businesses that might be struggling if they can prove that it's not going to work for them.
8: Well, I think that's that's a huge concession that the government has made after employers pointed out the catastrophe that would have occurred without that. But around the edges, around paths to conversion and the like, there are still there's, there's new ground that's being tilled here and with new ground comes risk for employers and concerns that it might be that they they, that it and they might be taken advantage of.
0: I wanted to ask you Innes about the right to disconnect you mentioned it before that idea that it's unreasonable for bosses to contact employees outside of paid hours why is this an issue for you? couple of things
8: here, Dave, by background, you know, this is an idea that got picked up out of France in about 2017 in the dying days of the government of Francois Hollande and it hasn't been a raging success in France. But what the concerns are this, right now we have settled arrangements around, you know, what people are concerned about here about being called or emailed outside of work. Yeah, that's picked up in awards, it's picked up through the fair work system more generally and there's a, there is already a system, a mechanism in place for people if they feel they've been taken advantage of. What we were talk, talking to the government about was really situations where people were being asked to work substantial amount of time, hours outside of work and weren't being paid for it. And I think everyone accepts that. And, but there are already mechanisms in place to deal with that. Really getting to the point is that with people, you know, it's now being put to people that, oh, well, you don't have to answer an email or pick up the phone outside of work. I could give you a book full of examples of case studies of where that might be necessary. You know, if the fire alarm goes off at work and you're the person with the code, you know, and you're rung to ask for the code, naturally you're going to pick it up, but But now you have a right not to. But don't you reckon... If you're an care worker and somebody needs to work out what medicine has been given to a patient earlier in the morning to check something, you know, it's all covered off in awards at the
0: moment, but it just introduces
8: that new complexity uncertainty.
0: I mean, just to be clear though, there are carve-outs, exceptions that have been made in amendments for bosses calling workers about changes to their shifts, for example, and protections against frivolous and vexatious claims. So so some of the examples you've given, the person trying to find the code for the alarm, for example, may fall under that category.
8: Again, this is where things are going to have to be tested because we have a new regime and employers are concerned you know, well, what does vexatious mean? A lot of this is very subjective. What is reasonable, that is very subjective. So a lot of this inevitably and unfortunately is gonna be have to be tested through the workplace relations system and through the courts as we try to settle on new arrangements. It's that uncertainty
0: and the conflict and the complexity that's occurring here that's what concerns employers. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us on Hack. Innes Willocks from the Australian Industry Group. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Dave. Take care we've got messages coming through. Al from Newey says, for those businesses that can't afford these roles, they shouldn't be in business in the first place. That's Al's opinion. Another person says, this should have happened a long time ago. I lost my casual job because I asked for a day off to study. And someone else says, oh, no, businesses are going to lose some of their power to abuse employees. What are we going to do? Ah, oh, okay. There's a few different opinions popping through the text line now. I want to unpack it a bit more. And we actually have the Minister with us to tell us about these changes. Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke. is with us now. G'day, Minister. Welcome back to Hack. Yeah, it's good to be back. Oh, busy afternoon. I'm sure you're pretty happy this afternoon as well. You obviously managed to get the support for these workplace law changes. There are some amendments, some concessions have been made. I guess my first question is, do you reckon that they go far enough?
5: I reckon the, we've we've actually ended up with a better bill uh, as a result of all the discussions with the crossbench. I'm I'm really happy with where it's landed, uh, and yeah, you know, the outcome of today: casuals have more rights, gig workers have rights for the first time, the road transport industry's finally got some minimum standards that will come out of today, and importantly, for those workers where sometimes an employer just gets completely unreasonable, contacting you non-stop. You've got the right to say, hang on, I'm not being paid at the moment. I'm, I'm just going to enjoy the weekend.
0: I want to get into some of those changes in a bit. But broadly, how much of a difference do you think these reforms are going to make for Australian workers?
5: Oh, the difference is huge. And you've got to put, like, there's three bills that you now put together. We had secure jobs, better pay, the first half of closing loopholes, and now the, cl- the closing loopholes, too, that's just gone through a few minutes ago. You put all that together. Effectively, we have turned a corner now in Australia to say vulnerable workers deserve minimum standards and we're going to find ways to do it, which we hadn't happened before. We've got laws now that significantly are part of closing the gender pay gap uh, to make sure that we no longer have a situation. You know, we're starting to close the gap between pay for, for men and women. We've got laws now that, yeah, you know, things like wage theft was not a crime. It was legal before we did, made all these changes to advertise a job at a rate of pay that was unlawful, but you could put the ad in. And, you know, casuals could be given a full-time roster, want to be casuals. You know, going out trying to get rental properties and being told, oh, you don't have a permanent job, we're going to give it to someone else. And going to their employer saying, I'm working permanent hours, I really want you to shift me across, and having no rights to be able to make sure that happened. This is a real change in improving rights for people when they're working and improving their pay. I, um, I'm pretty excited about it, You have got to tell you.
0: Well, let's delve into a few of those different issues. For gig workers, for example, in Europe, there are proposals to just declare platform workers employees. Why not do that?
5: In Australia, employees uh, have a whole lot of various leave entitlements as well and rostering entitlements in different ways that don't really work on a gig platform and minimum shifts and things like that so to make gig employees just employ make gig workers all employees you'd either have to lower the standards for employees or create rules for gig workers that are actually not practical yeah you, know, you, you got a job in retail you've got a minimum shift of, of a few hours and they can't roster you for less than that whereas for a gig worker they are they actually often want to just log on they've got half an hour here they want to be able to you know do some deliveries or a couple of hours here and that's how they want to work. So what we've tried to do is keep the flexibilities that gig workers want and say, being an employee doesn't match what you want, but what we'll do for you is we'll say that you still should be able to have some minimum standards. There should be rates of pay that you can't be paid below. And so what we're doing is different to what's been done
0: anywhere else in the world. You said at the press club last year that the gig worker changes might push up the cost of a takeaway pizza, for example. What sort of price rises are people looking at for their takeaway? Like, what do you expect? And do you think that people are going to be happy with that?
5: Okay, so for some times of day, delivery riders' rates are already high. So at peak times, people don't go below what would probably end up being minimum rates anyway. And that's when most people are ordering. There was a Victorian inquiry that said basically it was roughly between 3 and $5 across an hour the underpayment was that was happening for gig workers. So, you know... You divide that by the number of deliveries somebody might make, uh, and some people do a lot of deliveries, and sort of gives you a rough guide. So we're not talking about something significant uh, from the consumer's end, but yeah, you know, I was always upfront. Yeah, there there will be you will get some sort of difference because you know, <laughs> underpaying people's cheaper. Yeah, <laughs> slavery is probably cheaper too. But yeah, you know, we're a nation that decided ages ago that you shouldn't have to rely on tips to make ends meet, and that's what today's about.
0: The casual changes, how many people do you think are going to take up that option to convert from casual to permanent? Because there are a lot of workers who like being casual. We know that. A lot of them listening right now. How popular do you think this is actually going to be?
5: I reckon yeah, probably 95% of casuals won't ever want to use this, and that's fine they want to stay casuals. It might be their second job. They might be students where they want to just flex their hours up and down, or they might just be relying on the loading and they don't, they'd don't. they rather keep the loading than have the benefits of leave entitlements. And anyone who wants to stay casual, this, this law doesn't change anything for them. But if you're somebody who has a whole lot of financial commitments, it might be you've got dependents, it might be you know, you're trying to get into a mortgage because, you know, it's pretty hard to get a mortgage or increasingly sometimes even to get a rental property if you don't have secure employment. So there's, there, there will be the, the data that we've got, it's roughly one in 20 people who okay. are casuals might seek this out. Now, not everyone will qualify. So to give people rights, which is what we've done today, to be able to say, well, I'm, yeah, I'm a casual, but I'm working really regular hours. You're intending to keep giving them to me. I want to switch across. And you've got a bit, you've got the the force of law behind you. It's life changing for the ones who want it.
0: What I'm wondering though is, there is this provision. If businesses, you know, think that they have fair and reasonable grounds, they can knock it back. So, is that actually providing protection and certainty for casuals?
5: I oh, know the fair and reasonable grounds has a specific meaning that the Fair Work Commission applies. So. Under the old laws that the previous government put in place that we're now changing, that sort of test was basically if the employer said that's what it was, then that was the end of it. And if you didn't like it, the best you could do was try to hire a barrister and go to the Federal Court of Australia to try to get it fixed. Now, it means the, the Fair Work Commission is able to to test whether it's fair and reasonable. Yeah, there There will be times where the employer will say, well, hang on, we're about to close that shop in a few weeks' time. We can't give you a permanent job. That's fair and reasonable grounds. Like You'd have to cop that. Uh, But there'll be other times where an employer just offers grounds that don't stack up. They'd never make it past the commission. The mere fact, though, that you've got this in law says to employers, we're serious about this now.
0: I want to put some of the concerns of businesses to you because we've heard already some saying they're worried that they're not going to be able to afford this, they're not going to be able to remain profitable, be able to pay their workers. Some are worried it's going to create more friction with their staff in the workplace. How do you respond to that?
5: I think those claims are wild, really wild. Like, like look at it this way. A casual worker is paid a loading on top that is roughly worth the same amount as the leave entitlements that a permanent worker has. So businesses saying, oh, this will cost us too much. That's just not true. It's just not true because the worker is just wanting to swap out the loading for the security in the leave entitlements. So it's just not true that it's more expensive. In terms of does this create a problem for the employer? Really, the only employers I can think of where this is a problem, the employer's who like people to be insecure in employment, like them to be casual because they want to keep them on their toes and make them not quite sure if they're going to get the next shift who are using it as a management tool. It's not a majority of employers who do that, but I'll tell you, some do. Mm. This brings them into line.
0: All right. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke about these changes to workplace laws that the government's making. Got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, as a food delivery driver, hopefully the new changes mean I can work the 50 hours that I'm working a week and earn above the minimum wage. Sarah from Redfern says, I work in HR and have had casual staff decline an offer of permanent as they can't afford to live on a salary without 25% casual loading. Sarah says, contact should be managed, not legislated. And someone else says, I'm a retail worker and am harassed to change shifts, update details and do training while I'm at home. Ben from Canberra has also asked a question that he wants me to put to the minister. Ben, I am going to put that to the minister in a second, actually, so hold on, but First, Minister, the right to disconnect has been a pretty controversial element, debated a lot through the media over the past few days. Make sure your boss isn't hassling you after hours. Is it possible though that this right to disconnect blurs the boundaries a bit? Like how do you define what is a legitimate concern for the boss to get in touch and what's frivolous or not important?
5: Well, you you start with the principle that it shouldn't be controversial that when you're working, you're meant to be paid. Like that's sort of all we're we're talking about here, that if the employer's expecting you to work, which constantly checking your emails and responding to them and things like that, that, that's work. That's the sort of thing you're meant to be paid for. And one of the things that's happened ever since we've all carried phones, like most of the listeners, they might listen to the same music as me, but they're younger than me, and uh, most of your listeners won't remember the times when, you know, people used to be on call and they'd carry a beeper, And they were the only people who'd be contacted and you'd get an allowance for it. There's been a real drift over the last 20 years where some employers just expect a worker to always be on, even though they're not getting an allowance for it, they're not being paid for it. That's not reasonable. So I actually think this thing's really simple, which is the bad actor won't get away with it anymore because the worker has a right they didn't used to have. But the principle behind it all, Is a principle as sort of as old as the end of slavery, which is if you're working, you're meant to be paid.
0: I mean, you're championing the right to disconnect. I think it is fair to ask, you're a minister, are you going to not contact your staff after hours?
5: Only the one... Look, there there are some staff of mine who are paid an allowance to be on call and they're the only ones I contact, the workers who I've got who don't get paid that allowance. I'd never in a million years call them
0: outside of hours. All right. Well, they'll be, they'll be listening to make sure, Minister. No, oh, no, that's fine.
5: But they, at least for my team, they, they're exercise, they'll be legally able to enforce a right that was already being respected.
0: All right. Well, you might want to disconnect after today, Minister, Workplace Relations, Minister Tony Burke. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Not for making... sure if
5: the right applies to me.
0: Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Hark. appreciate your time.
5: Thanks, Dave. See
0: ya. And we still got a lot of messages coming through on the text line. We'll keep you across these changes, uh, explain more about what's going on uh, in the weeks and months ahead, but time to move on. Hack.
1: I'm
3: not a big fan of lawns. On Triple J. Most of us
0: have hobbies, right? Scrolling TikTok could be your hobby. <laughs> Reading a book, keeping the garden looking nice at home. Maybe you have an obsession with your lawn. Trying to keep it green, freshly mowed, you're convinced that your lawn is the best on the block. Some people are really into it. Maybe you grew up with parents that were just, I don't know, obsessed with the lawn. But some people also hate their lawns. They're over all the work. And there's actually a movement across the world of people who are refusing to water their lawn because of environmental reasons. Joe Lauder's got more.
4: Where I live in, in Tasmania, it's incredibly beautiful. It's in the South Arm district. And you can see Mount Wellington, we're about 40 minutes from Hobart. But because of that, it puts us in a rain shadow. So we're actually the driest place in Tasmania. That combined with sandy soil and the bandicoots, it was like trying to stop the tide from coming in. Like, I am not going to ever live on a mini golf course.
2: Kathleen Murray from Tasmania has become a bit of an unexpected poster child. And it happened accidentally.
4: I suppose my road to ugly lawn glory began when my ex left with the lawnmower. Then three wild bandicoots moved in. Like, I used to think they'd invaded my lawn, but now I realise that they've actually liberated me from ever having to mow it ever again.
2: When Kathleen stopped mowing her lawn, it looked pretty dire by traditional standards.
4: In the South Arm, district, we're all on tank water. So um, we just rely on on using water for household use.
2: She recently heard a chat on ABC Radio with the organisers of the world's ugliest lawn competition. And she thought, yeah, I've got a good contender. Kathleen won.
4: They gave me a recycled T-shirt. It says proud owner of the world's ugliest lawn and it was kindly donated from last year's winner.
0: We think if more people can see the beauty in an ugly lawn, we, we can save a lot of water.
2: The organiser Johan Gustafsson told the ABC that the award is funny, but it also has a deeper message.
0: We want to um, challenge the norm of green lawns where they are not natural.
2: First, it helps to understand where lawns have come from. This uniform, freshly shaved green surface is this British colonial ideal that was transplanted to Australia. And the most popular grass varieties are introduced species.
9: And it has like pretty deep cultural roots, these expectations for these green, lush spaces, these English-style gardens, even when they don't necessarily work with the local climate.
2: Claire Dole is from the University of Western Australia.
9: I am an environmental economist, and the type of research that I do is really focused on understanding public preferences for environmental changes.
2: I'll get into Claire's research on lawns in a moment, but first, the environmental impacts. The big one is water use. According to the Australian government, 60% of water use at home is used outdoors, and of that, 90% goes to lawns. Remember, Australia is the driest populated continent on Earth, and our climate is getting hotter and drier.
9: You also face issues with fertilizer use, and there are some more indirect impacts with you know, carbon emissions with mowing and, you know, the gasoline and all of the maintenance that goes into it. Of
2: course, that'll change with electric mowers, but traditional two strike motors pollute lots.
9: And then on the other side, you're kind of missing out on some environmental benefits that you might have with more native vegetation, with more biodiversity benefits on the floral and the faunal side.
2: So I decided to chat to a colleague who loves his stuff.
1: I suppose, in a sense, um, I've been quite the poster child of the more wild look. <laughs> and, a lot of fans though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't have a facial mower um, and uh, the kind of same applies to my street. You know, I, I took the grass out of there a long time ago. This
2: is Gardening Australia host Costa Georgiades. Costa points out that lawns are much better at cooling their surrounds than a paved backyard or astroturf. And that's also important for designing our green spaces. And people like having some grass. If you
1: have it in a strategic place or you have an amount that's appropriate, like, and look after that bit, but not have fence to fence. And I think that's what people are doing now. Whereas before, our backyard was just fence to fence. There might've been a veggie patch. There was a clothesline and that was about it. And people just mowed. If you're freaking out
2: and about to post about how these greenies are coming for our lawn and they want to turn suburbia into a giant dust bowl, not so fast. There are lots of alternatives to having a place that looks like Versailles. Costa gets really excited about making gardens with native species that are much more tolerant of our climate and attract other species as well.
1: It will begin to establish a microclimate. It will create a mini-ecosystem. It will bring insects. Insects will bring birds. Birds and insects will also bring other marsupials and other wildlife. Suddenly, you're talking ecology. Suddenly you're talking biodiversity. There's a whole new outlook and that space becomes part of a corridor. This isn't just an issue for private
2: spaces, that is, lawns around our homes. It's a major headache for local governments. They manage parks and they set the rules for nature strips. Researcher Claire Dole lives in Perth, where water availability is a big concern for councils going forward. And so she ran a study about how the public feels about these grassy spaces.
9: You know, we really expected to see that people wanted to see more water grass, green grass in their parks. But we actually found that the optimal mix of ground covers in urban parks was about 60% native vegetation and 40% water grass. And that's a really massive change compared to our kind of baseline scenario that's often around 80% watered grass. When it comes to nature strips or
2: verges, about half the population surveyed preferred native plants.
9: Whereas it was more like 30% that preferred watered grass. But what was really interesting there is that the people that most preferred native vegetation were familiar with it because they had at least one neighbour that already had planted a native garden.
2: And Claire's excited by these findings.
9: Really these results are suggesting that there's room for environmental improvements and happier communities and also cost savings for government. And when we do these types of studies as environmental economists, it's really rare that everyone wins.
0: Hack on Triple J. Yeah, Joe Lauder with that report and a lot of messages from people who are over their lawns. (laughs) Alyssa in Ballarat, lawns suck. I never water mine. I'm slowly digging it out and putting in natives. Ben from Victoria, though, says, mate, nothing better than coming home from work, cracking a can, jumping on the ride on and enjoying some peace and quiet. But then Simon in Wodonga, I hate having a lawn. It's ridiculous. We just have it so that we can cut it. I've always hated it. My dad used to force me to cut it. I wrote a manifesto once about how stupid it is. We only have them to show we're rich enough to have land that isn't being used for anything other than to show that we can afford it. Hey, that is Simon's very severe reaction to lawns there. That is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll be back with the shake-up tomorrow. Can't wait. I'll catch you then. See ya.
4: Hack.